0: Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today. While well, we both sip a tea or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic. It's a chance for those affected by the impact of lockdown the opportunity to chat because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Friday, October the 2nd, 2020, and my guest today is theatre producer and founder of ARIA Entertainment, Katie Lipson from Manchester. Katie's love and talent for music began at a young age, and she went on to study at the London School of Musical Theatre and for a classical music degree at Goldsmiths College. But it was while she was at UCL that her passion for producing, putting on shows and managing a business grew, developed and flourished. Since then, Katie has averaged 10 shows a year, including Hair, Pippin, Spring Awakening. She's produced the UK premiere tour of The Adams Family and most recently opened a socially distanced production of the last five years. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Katie Lipson. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, Katie, thank you so much for um, chatting to me today, especially... When you had a show open last night,
1: I'm very lucky to have a show opening last night.
0: Wow, yeah, and we will talk about that. But um, I've dragged you up early. Katie, now I always say to my guests, what drink do you have in your hand? Well,
1: (laughs) I actually have a bottle of water. I'm not very adventurous, you know, rehydrating this time in the morning. And really, not a coffee or tea drinker, um, which people find surprising, but it just, you know, just don't like it wish I did, but I
0: don't. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, I think there's lots of us that probably wish we didn't like tea as much as we do. I've got a a strong English breakfast tea this morning. So, um, cheers. Cheers. Katie, before we get on to the mountain of shows that you have brought to the stage, I first want to start, if I may, where this all began, where your love of theatre and creativity started.
1: Well, I grew up in a very musical household, very theatrical. Like, not no one in my family was in the arts, but my mum particularly had a love of theatre and music, and my grandparents. Both sides of the family are quite musical, but it was really my mum's side of the family that, you know, took me to the theatre quite often. In the car, mum would play all of the mixtapes of Rodgers and Hammerstein, Angeloid Weber, Stephen Sondheim, Les Mears. So from very early on, she could see I was very kind of in tune with it and loved it and I could sing and I liked to sing a lot as a baby even and then um there was a piano at home and my mum played by ear I remember used to looking look at her when I was four and go wow you know she's so good and then obviously by the time I was like 11 or 12 I was like a better pianist than her, but I do remember thinking I'll never play like her. But, um you know, so I started to play the piano as well at sort of six years old. And at school, I just gravitated towards drama group. And, you know, so as a young person, my first sort of introduction to theatre was obviously both watching it and taking part in musical and drama at school as a performer, as a musician, because I think that's kind of how you begin. Um, although there was always a sort of lack of confidence in me as a performer um, to a degree that would hold me back and I always used to think I don't think I want to be an actress I really don't but you know I can sing and 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 I like to sing musicals so I'd like to be in a musical you know at school Mm -hmm. and stuff so that's how it began and by the time I was sort of Um, At secondary school, I'd already started learning the the cello as well and the guitar and I was in choir and I was writing like little songs, you know. So it was a huge passion and it was definitely musicals that I was drawn to. I like plays as well, but musicals were the thing that took me to another level. And I was a huge fan of classical music. I loved classical music. So music was the driver to theatre for Mm me as a younger person and as i guess i've grown as a human i'm obviously much more drawn now to story and what is the show you know what does the show mean without its musical language mm-hmm. but it was certainly the music that hooked me at the beginning
0: that's really interesting and were you were you self taught playing piano because you mentioned your mum was did you follow in no, that vein no
1: I, I went to lessons <laughs> but um, i liked the classical mm-hmm. but i also did my own thing so you know we'd buy a book of Andrew Lloyd Webber piano songs whatever and I would embellish you know I used to watch my mum and see how she would embellish things and make them sound bigger and as I grew up I realised that she probably played everything in the same key you know like by ear but it's still like something that other people didn't do and I still find it quite brilliant how she can play things by ear whether it's in one key or not um so yeah I mean look she I think when you're brought up in a house where there's a passion you don't necessarily gravitate towards it but obviously I inherited some sort of musical love Mm. (laughs) Uh, I did have like great teachers you know that inspired me and sort of took me through all the exams but I always sort of Wasn't just, you know, played by the rules. I sort of did my own thing as well. So, Mm -hmm. played a bit by ear as well as following the the notes.
0: (laughs) So, it sounds like music was really the driving force for you, almost in quite an organic way as well.
1: I think that the way my journey's gone as a producer over the last eight years is definitely um, not just synced with that upbringing because of my passion, but actually because I became highly skilled on the piano and well-versed in musical theatre just as a sort of someone that was like you know a, sort of obsessed with musicals and had a good awareness of songs and audition rep and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff for actors when I eventually did a uh, Finnish university which I know we'll talk about I um went on to uh use those skills to earn a living mm-hmm. and the reason that's relevant is really after uni the only job I had before as a producer was really as a sort of accompanist, MD, vocal coach, repertoire coach. So that skill as a pianist was so important for me beginning my career as a producer, because as I'll also say, it's very hard to make a living for the very first few years of doing shows in small theaters. So my living was made from the money I earned playing the piano for other singers. You know, that was a huge part of how I survived. And if I didn't have that skill and didn't get paid that level of, you know, because it's private tuition, it's a good, good wage, and I had to do a wage that was lower and do more hours, I wouldn't have had the time to commit to learning how to produce and how to throw myself into a project that made me nothing. But I could survive because I had three days of teaching at a various school, you know?
0: Mm. And so all of these musical talents that you had at school, did you think, right, after school, I'm going to go on and and pursue this? Because you were also pretty academic weren't you not saying that you can't be musical and academic but usually most people follow one path yeah were you were you conflicted
1: the way my brain works now as a producer and how I sort of manage a lot at once you know like I kind of do 10 shows at once all at different stages and I like the versatility of doing a lot but and and then having other people take it do the detail Is in like I'm not the director, I'm not the designer, but I, the overarching sort of manager of that project, that's where I really thrive. And actually, when I look back and reflect on myself as a young, you know, like a 15-year-old, I really enjoyed that part of my education when I was doing 10 GCSEs. You know, I liked the versatility of maths, to physics, to chemistry, to biology. And, you know, I went to a good school, Manchester High School, which was kind of an all-girls school where, like, Emily Pankhurst actually went you know the movement of the suffragette and um I like GCSEs kind of more than I did when I went to university so yeah that's it. I went to that school and although I was academic I had to work hard it wasn't that I was really naturally brainy and could just like wing my way through Mm -hmm. I I did okay because I I cared about learning you Mm -hmm. know I actually enjoyed learning a little bit about everything and naturally I did my best really when I was doing my sort of GCSEs because that versatility, like I said, I really flourished at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my A-levels, I did biology, chemistry, music and drama wow. and did you know, well as well. But the point is, is that I didn't really want to do a music degree or a drama degree. I wasn't really, definitely not a drama degree. I mean, may- maybe I was thinking a little bit about a music degree, but I just thought if I made my life my passion... Mm-hmm. Um w- What would I have anymore, you know, as my passion and my release? little did I know that it would be this role because this role is not something you kind of know about necessarily there 's right. not much you can think about producer. most people just think that they get all the money and they 're really wealthy and they put money in you don 't necessarily know how creative the role is and how it can build and, and inspire and you know so um it never ever was a consideration really that I was going to go to university and do the arts i I really wanted to be a doctor at one point Mm -hmm. I really liked genetics I loved biology I loved learning about the body and nature and things like that and so I pursued a degree in human genetics at University College London Mm -hmm. so and again you know that was an interesting choice because I think coming to London might have been a very important step in what happened for me as well because I really do think that had I gone to Nottingham Uni or had I made a different decision I really don't know I really can't say I would have found this path. It was a couple of things that happened that took me on to putting on shows. And then suddenly it was, oh my gosh, that's it. That's that's what I am. I'm a producer. That's my calling. That's all the skills I have in one. And that's exactly what I want to do.
0: <laughs> it sounds like your personality as a teenager was very suited to what you're doing now. You know, juggling quite a lot of different balls and being able to apply yourself in lots of different guises almost just suited you perfectly. Um mm. what happened then you went to uni to begin yeah. your degree. Yeah, but something changed quite early on, didn't it? Two
1: big things happened. First of all I hated uni. Like I really did not enjoy going from this wonderful school from when I was 11 to 18. With small groups, classes, with great teachers, with one on one tuition, real personal connection to oh sit in a lecture with five hundred people all from different courses, and they go read a book, basically like that didn't motivate me, that wasn't the style of teaching that i I enjoyed it It was quite a lot, and to be honest it it was a combination of realizing I didn't want to do the degree quite quickly realizing I've missed home all those issues you have Mm. when you first leave home um and also not liking the style of teaching and not inspiring me not um so I wasn't immediately like oh I should have done music I just was like oh I don't like this Mm. kind of thing I was 18 you know actually when you think back when you're in your 30s and you're like that's a long time ago and gosh you're very young to decide what your fate is at 17 when you're deciding your degree choice. anyway um that was the first thing i didn't enjoy it so on the second sort of day of freshers week i went along to the musical theater society obviously to see what musical they were putting on and they were putting on cabaret i was like right i'm going to audition for that and they had an amazing theater called the bloomsbury theater which was next to the university my brother was also at ucl doing architecture and he moved to london the same time as me because he did a gap year Mm -hmm. although he's a year older so it was nice to have him there and he ended up actually building another theatre at the university, wow. which was like a studio theatre. He's now a designer for like really big concerts for pop stars and stuff. So he, he had That's it amazing. in his blood as well. But, you know, he set up a theatre and I ended up being in a lot of those shows in the studio, like Into the Woods and Tick Tick Boom and all these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I auditioned for Cabaret, I met this guy, this boy in the audition, who was extremely eccentric and very flamboyant and just, very like you know eye-catching and he was in ballet shoes and he was auditioning and I said to him oh hello and I thought I must say hello to this guy like who is he and he was like oh I'm Giles and and I said I'm Katie and also we both are Jewish and we happened to find out we were both Jewish and that was a connection and um Giles was like oh i I love musicals I'm studying Scandinavian studies and I said well I'm doing genetics by the way I have a piano I play do you play And that was it we were inseparable so this guy comes to my like halls of residence and there's a piano in my halls of residence as well as a keyboard in my room and over the next sort of I don't know maybe even two months he and I became you know best friends he got in the musical so did I and he said oh I like to write musicals I like to write opera let's write something together and basically after about six months we'd written a crazy chamber opera mainly really pushed by him because he was really a writer he really is and I I do think when you're a reasonably good musician you have the ability to write a tune here and there like if you've got it in your fingers you can you know whether it sounds like you're trying to be Les Mis or Angeloid Webber you generally can write so there I am helping this guy write a musical he couldn't read music and I could and but he could play very well and he was just he's just really full of life and ideas and actually I owe a lot to him because he was quite a oh well you know it's done now let's put it on kind of person Mm -hmm. and actually I probably wouldn't have because I would have said well it's not finished or it's not perfect or it's Mm -hmm. is it actually good and and he was like well whatever let's just put it on so I was like okay okay So I'm 19 and we're like walking around Camden trying to find a place that will give us the hall for free. We end up finding a church hall down Euston Road, and uh, Eversholt Street. We then um, find a rehearsal space for free. We both put a few hundred quid in the bank account. We cast it off Facebook or whatever and we put it on for two nights and I MD it with him. We swap playing and there we go. We put on a show and that's how... started putting on a show and I'm not gonna lie like we then really enjoyed the experience and he and I decided to form a proper company so we went to company's house we set up a theatre company we said that our artistic um, remit was to support new musicals Mm -hmm. and we we formed a theatre company at the same time both he and I left UCL after that year he went to work and I went to LSMT which is a, a drama school at 19 because although I knew I didn't want to be a performer. Like, what was I going to do? Like, it was too late to apply for another university course. It was like June, July, where I was like, I'm not going back. I looked in the stage. I saw the school was advertising. It's a one-year course, which attracted me to it because it wasn't too much of a commitment. Mm -hmm. And it had a composer attached, which they really sort of, you know, promoted the school by saying, you know, if you come here, you get a musical written for you to be in. And I thought, that's really attractive. So I went to that drama school and... Again, kind of reconfirmed that I love musicals, but I wasn't 100%, I was just going to be a straight actress. Mm-hmm. But luckily, this was the time where actor musicianship was really kind of becoming a thing. So I did get an agent and I did, for the for a couple of years, audition for some good stuff and, and got some really good roles. Like, you know, I was actually in Zorro, the musical, which is a show I just had on and, and it shut. And I was also in a show at the Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse. And then my agent represented me as a musical director. God. And I got him by playing auditions for Kudos Pantomimes because he knew the casting director. And then they said, oh, Michael Harrison, mm-hmm. big is doing a show and he wants an all-girl band. Do you want to be in the band as the assistant MD? And then I got that. And then someone else asked me if I wanted to MD a European tour of the 12 Tenors. Mm-hmm. So I spent probably 75% of my time after in terms of earning money in the business as a musical director or using my musical skills again as an added bonus to just standing as an actress and singing, which kind of, I realized I was a bit safer with my instruments. I was a bit more comfortable Mm -hmm. and I had something to offer in that department. And I eventually finished LSMT with this agent, did these jobs, had this company with Giles and eventually did go to uni and did a classical music degree at Goldsmiths, which to be honest, you know some say oh yeah you got there in the end but looking back I didn't really need that degree I didn't need it now I didn't need it at all but at the time I didn't know my path mm. um, you know I was I went to uni uh, to do the degree I was two years older than the other you know 18 year olds I wasn't on campus I realized I was so focused on the business and on theater mm. I didn't really enjoy the course it was quite a contemporary course they really kind of pushed you to contemporary composers I don't mean pop composers and contemporary classical composers so it was kind of like not traditional course and so I was like not so connected with it either the syllabus but you know in the end I got I got a degree and um I was 23 at this point had got the degree had done 10 shows with Giles with this company and had worked professionally throughout my whole degree as an MD and had to like try and pass my exams whilst being on tour which, you know, was a bit dicey at times. They were like, where are you, Katie? I was like, "Uh." (laughs) whoops. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, 23, I think I'd had quite a lot of experience in all different guises. And I even sort of sung in hotels for three hours every Thursday night, playing the piano and singing, you know, jazz and stuff to earn extra money and done a bit of everything, really.
0: (laughs) I mean, Katie, this is quite astonishing, really, Almost like you, you're doing a zigzag through this time. How did you feel when you were on stage performing, whether it was as an actress or with your musical instrument? Did you feel
1: comfortable? The couple of jobs I did as a performer were not the greatest experience. I don't think you know they they weren't. It wasn't something that I yearned for. And every time I had an audition for an acting role, or you know, I really dreaded it and then I did a couple of md gigs remember with the company with Giles every single show we did I musically directed was getting a lot of experience and that's where my love of accompanying came from playing for a singer being like a partnership with the voice I love that feeling of being part of that world of you know I felt I was performing with the singer and I really enjoyed that And I have to say that's probably the thing I miss most right now being so full-time as a producer but um you know, once I'd done an MD gig, I was like, "I like this a lot more." Even though that's really nerve wracking musically, directing a whole show, right? You know, cueing every single like click track. If you've got click tracks, playing, you know, if you don't play, the singles don't come in. Like, but I don't know. There was something about that that just that I felt more comfortable doing it, and I enjoyed it. Um, and I didn't enjoy it to the point where I was like my ambition is to conduct lay one day you know for me age is a really big factor as I've grown up my ambitions and my passions and my desires and my uh, have changed you know I'm very happy doing those things I don't think I've got the nerve to be an MD now but maybe because I feel like I've lost my confidence a bit because I haven't done it for a while mm-hmm. um so you know when I used to work at the Hope mill we used to do a fundraiser every year and the three of us, because we were all performers in some way, would do it together. Mm. And I used to play the piano for it. And me and one of the boys, Will, we were always quite nervous about getting back on the stage yeah. and singing and like, and Joe, the other guy, he was like, always confident. And we were like, oh, you're so confident. <laughs> and we're like, ah! But once we got on, we would you know, I was excited and happy and felt at, at one. But Yeah, I didn't miss the performing. I very quickly said to my agent, I think, oh, can you just put me up for things with musical instruments? Mm -hmm. That's where I really enjoy and that's where I'm best and and put me up for MD stuff. And I moved agencies a couple of times. I got the agent when I was like 20. By the time I was 23, I was with my sort of final agent Mm -hmm. who happens now to be one of my business and friends and business partners on projects as a producer. um, He took me on and I said to him, by the time I was like 25 look like the producing's really taking off I think I want to focus on it can you just keep me on your website but only really tell me if there's something like really right for me I'm not really interested Mm -hmm. in going away touring I really want to focus on what producing could be and I I made that decision that I would focus on one thing and I I don't I'm not saying you can't do it all I just didn't care about it all I Mm -hmm. cared about producing Mm -hmm. I loved that role I loved what it had to offer and what it where it could go and I wanted to put all my focus on that
0: I think it's really interesting you highlighting how you kind of grow through time don't you you change as a person and that's okay like we all do what we sometimes we wanted to do 10 years ago we don't maybe want to do now or or in a slightly different way and all through this time you said you'd put on 10 shows with your friend Giles yeah so again you are spinning a lot of plates yeah um you stuck out your three-year classical music Uh, degree well done because you could have left I know I mean it was
1: so yeah I didn't really enjoy it but you know I was there and I thought well may as well carry on with Giles um the shows we did they took a lot of time because because we didn't have any money like these shows were kind of like concerts Mm -hmm. you know you don't have set costume lighting you just have music singers and we used to go on the internet this is the days before like even facebook was as big as it is now really um and we would basically ask people to submit songs that were new and unpublished that they wanted performing in a show in london and we'd get 250 songs across the world we'd select 25 we'd find four singers two girls two boys And Giles and I would write a script, we'd present it, we'd sing in it. And then, you know, I enjoyed the audition process with the performers, finding the venues, selling the shows, getting a website, starting a little business. We'd always make a bit of profit and we would like to split all of the money with everyone Mm -hmm. equally. And it wasn't that risky because we just did like two shows every season or whatever, Mm -hmm. And because, I don't know, new kids on the block, you tend to sort of get a bit of support. Plus all the actors would get a few friends in to see them perform. Um, We recorded all the songs for the writers if they wanted to do that. And it ended up costing like, I don't know, a few quid for each song Mm -hmm. because we would do it all in one go in a studio. Um, Gosh, it feels like a long time ago, but I looked through the pictures of all these shows and I'm like, gosh we did work hard and we did you know so much content Right. Um, and also sometimes I would like I want a band but I didn't have any band parts and I wasn't going to arrange it mm-hmm. and I was very really lucky to have found some musicians that you call them like improvisers you know these people that can come along hear the groove and just like groove along mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I found a drummer that could do that a bass guitarist that could do that and be like right we've got a full band for this show and we just do it <laughs>
0: I love it. So Katie, you know, what happened after your degree? When did ARIA Entertainment start to flourish? Because I know that you founded it in 2012. Yeah. It must be difficult to get the company off the ground and get funding. And I don't know, do you need a backer? I mean, I wouldn't know how you start.
1: Well, no, the company never made any money for a long time until we sort of ventured into commercial theatre which was like the Adams Family mm-hmm. um, and when we did Hair at the Vaults, that was on our sort of commercial model and up until that point no so at 23 when I left the Goldsmiths course mm-hmm. um, and I was starting to not want to audition as much um, mm-hmm. a- another thing happened I MD'd a show through the agency that assisted it actually and I thought it was extraordinary this show I thought oh my gosh, like, if only I could get my hands on it and rewrite it in a way. And I really loved the music. I thought it was stunning. That was a real light bulb moment where I was like, I love Giles to pieces and I love this company, but I don't think our visions are aligned and I don't know if it can go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, I think I'd like to form my own company. Um, And he was like, okay. And then I found this show, which was a catalyst for that decision, as well as going on a sort of producer talk, where I went to listen to other producers talk and just was like insanely inspired. I'd never been to a lecture where I sort of sponged every bit of information in and thought, oh, this is music to my ears. This this is me. They are mirroring. Well, how they talk is, is how I feel. Mm-hmm. So that was when I really said, that is it. I've made that decision. It's like a light bulb. You know, when you have those moments of realisation, it's like, oh, so that was probably... 10 years ago, that happened. So I was starting to want to set up a company on my own. And I think the idea started to get the feeling in like 2010, 2011, but then it wasn't really till 2012. I sort of went for it. Mm. You know, you can't teach someone to have the confidence to do it. You just just do it. I came up with the logo, I came up with the name. I asked my brother, the artist, to do the logo. I set up a website, I chose a show. I'd already sort of become aware of all the great off-West End theatres in London. Mm -hmm. Again, another reason why London was important, had I been in Nottingham or even Manchester in those days, where would I have started my career? Mm. Because there isn't the same vibrancy of smaller venue. Mm -hmm. And you have to start in smaller venues if you've got no money or backers because you're doing smaller productions with smaller budgets. Now, after uni, I got the job at the Brit School as a sort of one-on-one Vocal repertoire coach and that paid me well and that was sort of three days a week Mm -hmm. so I was able then to form a company and I stayed at there for five years by the way until I was like did less said I'm done I'm full-time producer sort of thing Mm -hmm. and I formed Aria and I had all this awareness of venues because I like really studied it hard you know the landscape of fringe theatre and how I would grow from the company with Giles and how I would what show I wanted to do. And all these things are going on in your head at the same time. But I didn't have any backers. And I had no idea when I was at these lectures and they were like, it's 2 million pounds to capitalize this. And it's 3 million pounds. It's $15 million on with I was like, whoa, it didn't scare me, but I knew it was a long way off. So I thought, well, I need to do something that's probably 20,000 pounds, which is still mm-hmm. a lot of money. But again, I was prepared for my money where my mouth was mouth is, whatever the expression is. And that is a very important point because, you know, first of all, I had a bit of money saved because I'd done these gigs as MD and as this, as that. And I saved that money. And I said, right, well, if I want to do this, no one's going to back me. I have to back myself. So I literally took all of my own money and put it in my company. And that's how I started self-financing my own shows. Wow! I put my own money in. And I thought, well, if I lose it, I've invested in myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if I don't lose it, I'll do it again. I'll put more in. So I earned my money to live and pay the rent from the teaching. I put, I don't even know how much it was at the time, maybe it was between five, £5,000 and £10,000. A lot of money I know, but I like to tell this story because people just assume, oh, well, you know, a lot of people will think, oh, she must, she must have just got money from her family mm-hmm. to start the business. She, she must have this, she must have that. And it's not true. You know, I started with my own savings and those savings came from working working a degree and working on tour at the same time. You know, I got good money as an MD. MDs get paid well. So, you know, you're putting quite a big salary into an account. I didn't need to spend it because I had my student loan to pay what I was paying before I started working at the Brit school. And when I started at the Brit school, I had a few hundred pounds a week to pay to live. So that's kind of how that worked financially. So when I did my first show I needed £20,000. I was like, oh, I don't have that. What I would do, I'd be strategic and I would sort of like find relationships with other producers um, or creatives because sometimes directors wanted to produce behind the scenes, you know, their own work. And I'd say, look, I need, I've got 50%. Who Can you put the other in? I mean, if you don't ask, you don't get. So either someone else would put in half the money, not an investor, like another producer. Mm-hmm. And then the next step up was a £30,000 show So I'd need three partners and then a 50,000 pound show. Maybe at that point I had one investor that would put in 5,000 pounds. And then the next show, Oh, I'd found another investor. Now I can raise 10,000 pounds. And literally this is how the baby steps began because I was doing a lot of work. People would go, Oh, she's, you know, she knows what she's doing. And someone might engage me to consult on their show Mm -hmm. and pay some money. And the company would then have another 5,000 pound. So the company could invest a little bit more. And, you know, I did take calculated risks. I thought if these shows go south, I'm going to be able to pay my bills, as in, like, make sure I pay everybody whatever I need to pay them Mm -hmm. and make sure I'm not sort of bankrupt. And, and, you know, it's always a risk because had they all gone wrong, and believe me, like, money was lost a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, there were times where I wiped the whole account, you know, and if it wasn't for, like, a general management gig to put a bit of money back in... I wouldn't have but the truth is like it never was a cash rich business it literally was like out bit out a bit in a bit mm-hmm. out and I never paid myself there was never any money left for me um you know I survived through my teaching and I had no staff it was just me I couldn't afford anyone else mm-hmm. I I didn't have a staff member or expand the business until I entered the next phase of my career so you're talking you know 50 shows down you know we've done we've done edwin drood we've done the secret garden we've done children of eden we've done um tommy pinocchio jerry's girls Miami a little then the hope mill started parade hair you know pippin spring awakening aspects of love whatever crazy a lot of stuff and then um uh in 2015 so we're talking three years in i was like okay People say I'm prolific on the fringe. The big producers in the West End think I'm someone to watch, but I'm still a kid to them. They don't really take me that seriously, but, you know, they're aware of me, and they but they know that my, my shows and budgets are tiny, And but they're aware kind of thing. I was like, I really need to start thinking about the bigger picture here, because I've been doing this a long time, not just as Aria, but with the company with Giles. Um, and, you know, I was in my sort of coming to late 20s, and I was becoming very ambitious mm-hmm. to start to earn money i was sick of like having just no money even though i was okay money because of the teaching i was like oh you know it's great to have so much you know applause from the audience and appreciation but i'm not really a business Mm -hmm. and that's really frustrating me and i'd done more of this course you know the one where i spoke to these producers and i knew very quickly that the economics of the union theater the Landor, the hope mill the arcola even the Southwark Playhouse to a degree, that doesn't make producers money, you know? You only make money when you enter a proper, proper business model, a show that's running in a reasonably large space, or you do a non-for-profit model where everything's covered by finance and you've got a producer fee. Mm -hmm. But you can't make serious money until you're, like, taking a show on tour or taking a show into the West End and it's successful, and you're paid a salary. So I used to fly myself off to New York three times a year to see Broadway, the knock on doors. And I would do that a lot. I had that confidence that I lacked as an actor to knock on a door to a stranger and go, hi, I'd like to meet you. And I realized that put me in a room with 25 people and ask me to network and I'm terrible. Mm-hmm. Ask me to set up a meeting with 25 people privately where I've got their one-on-one attention and I'll go for it and I'll love it, you know, because I've prearranged it and they want to meet me and I get my time with them. I really like that more than working the room and all that. So, um, basically, in a nutshell, I was scouring the websites, you know, the the licensing websites, and thought, I need a show. And I'd learned so much from the losses and the the shows. I'd learned so much from what people wanted, what people didn't want. And I also knew that if it was a big show, like Wicked or Come From Away now and Dear Evan Hansen and Kinky Boots and Waitress, you know, they come over with the Americans. I wouldn't want to be part of those shows anyway because they're already made. They're amazing. They're already made. I want to make my own shows. And if I'm doing a revival, I want to make do my own revival. So I'm there looking and thinking, what title could be commercial? You know, we've already got Lion King on, on tour, Avenue Q, Les Mis, Phantom, Mormon. I mean, whatever, like the list goes on. But big shows from the West End, Annie, Priscilla, we All Rock, you, Jersey Boys, you know, they all are the big hitters and they've got producers attached to them. Mm-hmm. And anything else that's not being done, isn't done for a reason. You start to realize that you don't see Pippin on tour and you don't see really even Spring Awakening on tour and you don't see um, 42nd Street on tour, whatever you do. Because our culture here and our ability to sell theater is very different to the US. Um, and what's a legacy in the US is different to here. In a nutshell, there was one show that had been on Broadway that didn't really do that well, but was a huge brand. And for some reason, no one seemed to want it. As in, like, the West End producers were like, nah, and the big touring producers hadn't, hadn't got it. And that was the Adams Family. You know, you're talking about an international brand, you know, that had this massive production with Nathan Lane on Broadway, got mixed reviews, lasted a couple of years, and that was it. Didn't come over they obviously didn't think it would make enough money and sometimes those big producers they they actually don't think about doing the tour they they're like eh, whatever small fry these broadway producers are used to grossing a million dollars a week not 6 million dollars over a year or whatever like <laughs> so um i got it and that was the change you know that was it that was me doing something massive that was a massive amount of money i had to raise but sometimes it's easier to raise 100,000 pounds than 10,000 pounds you know sometimes because it's a bigger brand and it's got a chance to make money and you know and I was lucky enough to find a partner on the show who was a touring expert that was his world so we had a tour ready made you know built with the best venues in the country and when i say best i mean there are better venues than others you know you need a venue that has a great audience mm-hmm. following that's going to sell tickets so there I am with this great tour from the Lowry to Southampton Mayflower to Canterbury Marlowe to Dublin to Welsh Millennium Centre to Roland Derngate, whatever, you know, great venues. He general managed the tour. I produced the tour with him and it did very well. Very, very good business and taught me a lot about the commercial world of producing.
0: Well, Katie, I saw it when it came down here to the Mayflower in Southampton and I loved it. I really did. I didn't know what to expect going in. It was very slick. It was very stylised and full of wit and charm and a big tour at all the, you know, best theatres around the UK. You must have thought, I'm on the kind of big hitters map now. Were there any times along that way where you felt you weren't being heard, you weren't being seen? You, you mean because I was like new, newbie? Mm, you newbie, still in your twenties? Good
1: question. I um, was very careful about who was going to be involved. So at first the project began with me and two other young producers who were great creative people ambitious like me and they're still involved with the show, but they took like a slightly like smaller role in the end, but we together got the rights to this and we were very careful as a partnership to make sure that the director we chose was a good egg. If Mm -hmm. that makes sense, Mm. because we knew that the fear was that we wouldn't be taken seriously as you say. Um, We had a lot to prove even to get the rights, but these guys had a good relationship with Andrew Lipper, the composer, and he really vouched for us as a team, which was a really good thing. And we got this director called Matt White, who also is an actor, and he's just a really lovely man. Good at his job, good leader, calm, respectful, treats us no different to how you treat Cameron Macintosh. Like Mm -hmm. seriously, just really, normal, no issues, just no nonsense and very, very just humble and we knew that if we got that right then we'd be fine because he would gravitate towards other people that were just as good so the writers approved him because they had to and then he assembled the designer, Diego you know, the choreographer and then we had an MD Actually, he was on board before we found our touring partner because at first we wanted to do it in the West End and we couldn't get traction with casting. Mm-hmm. Something to do with the brand. I think people think if it's not a premiere, I don't want to be in it, or you know, so it's very hard to get stars in musicals. So, um, we decided to go the touring route, and that's when we met John and we could then get a tour very quickly because he, you know, he does a tour every year, so he has those venues lined up. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot from John. You know, what What? What I didn't know John did was John, you know, is older than me and been doing this for 20, you know, 20 years more and um, run buildings, done tours, understands. Yeah, I really enjoyed the partnership. I really enjoyed that. And for John, he hadn't really collaborated before in this way because he didn't need to. He used to just do these shows on his own. But in fairness, he needed titles. You know, he didn't have a cool title. He'd done Chitty Bam Bang, which did amazing business mm-hmm. and they'd done Feather on the Roof. But he was looking for something new. And as I said to you, we've we'll got slim pickings at the moment, you know, about what we're actually going to do. Because if something is really successful on Broadway, it will come over already with the producers. So what are you going to do? Another revival of Sound Music. And if you are, you're not, because actually the rights are owned by Bill Kenwright, you know, they're all gone. So, mm-hmm. um, you know... I was heard and it was a lovely experience where I did get respect. And when I didn't know the answer, you know, I didn't know. I just said, can you explain what that is? We work with AKA on marketing. We work with, um, on malpass on PR. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it's a bigger process. You have more money, you have more people doing their jobs. So, and, and the, the biggest joy was like, obviously John and his partner, Anne, at the business she did the general management. So all that, all the issues that I've had to face as an independent producer on these small shows, everything from I need a new pair of tights or I want more money and I want this and I need this for the set. And I didn't have to deal with any of that drama. She deals with that. That's what the general manager has to do. Unless they have to bring it to us and say they need more money. But that really taught me how important it is to have the freedom to not have to deal with all the minutiae because it sours the experience and it can also fracture relationships with your team because they're demanding you from you and you're just like no whereas if someone else is saying no you don't have to have that difficult conversation with an agent and you know there's a barrier the producer can just be creative can have make big decisions but the general manager is like no there's no more money if you want me to be back up i'm back up <laughs> and she was great at that she was fantastic like she didn't but like it's a business at the end of the day business and it was great that to have Anne to do that and for me to learn how I never had to see a, a, a anything like a, I didn't need to see an invoice I didn't need to sign off anything I didn't need to deal with agents I didn't need to deal with oh it was just a joy I could just produce raise the money go to the meetings cast the show talk about the creative process look at the artwork you know what I mean like make this really key big decisions at the top top that was a joyous experience not just because it did you know well didn't you know buy us a house or anything but it returned its money for investors and you know made a small profit the team were in love with the show they were they were proud they were they liked each other they enjoyed going to work so they were a joy on and off the stage and that made the whole experience a joy because a successful show and a happy company is a happy show.
0: Katie thank you for explaining that process to me it's fascinating and I think um you highlighted the importance of getting the right team in place and how important those personalities are with everybody working together at this time were you also working on other projects too because you said you know you'd always juggled loads of different things so have you got other plates spinning for other shows
1: Yes. In fact, let me just open up because I write, this was one of the busiest years I've ever had. 2017, I think it was. Oh no, 16, it started. Oh no, 17. So yeah, I had on, um, I did Promises, Promises mm-hmm. in January at the Southern Playhouse. I did a show called That's Jewish Entertainment at the Gatehouse in March. I did a show with a theatre in Denmark called Lizzie, based on Lizzie Borden at Greenwich in March. I did Yank, a new musical on the wall there Mm -hmm. at the Hope Mill in March. I did Tick Tip Boom at the Park Theatre in May. I transferred Yank to the Chine Cross in July. I did the Toxic Avenger at the Edinburgh Fringe in August. Moved it to the West End in September with Flying Music, a big West End producer. Did Pippin at the Hope Mill in August. Did a festival of new musicals for three weeks at the Other Palace with Angeloid Webber investing in the season oh my god this is crazy did hair the musical at the vaults in the autumn which ran for 16 weeks then did little women at the Hope mill in november and had the adams family on tour from april to november and went to singapore in december i mean that is mental and i don't know how i did it i didn't have a life i mean like i literally didn't start i'd work every day of the week and it was mental Actually, I had a staff member I'm not gonna lie. They joined in that January. Mm-hmm. That was how I managed. I had a second person within Aria that helped with those shows and with Adams, there was a big team so whilst it was my biggest show and biggest earner, it it needed the least time from me mm-hmm. because I'm paying in the budget a handsome fee to someone to general manage it mm-hmm. to deal with the contracts like I say the payroll, the invoice. So I don't have to deal with any of that micromanagement. Mm-hmm. And with Toxic Avenger, my business partners as well, they dealt with all the invoicing and contracts there. And so I just dealt with the creative. And although that's a lot of work, I've just said to you, like they do like go like this down the calendar. Mm-hmm. So there's only really two projects on at one time. But my God, that is a lot of work. And I'm a bit feel a bit ill like reading that lip (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised
0: well okay Katie I'm gonna try and whiz through a few more things before we finish because in 2017 you were awarded best producer award by the off west end awards how did that feel it must have felt wonderful or do awards not really matter well to be honest
1: I think that was the first award I'd ever had and I hadn't been, I mean, the office, they often nominate people in a big list, but the producer thing is just kind of like they just say who it is. And I was really thrilled. And I, people would say, oh, why haven't you won that yet? People would like sort of make me aware of it and stuff. But the biggest joy out of that was that I got to meet Sonia Freeman <gasps> as my prize. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for those who don't know, she's probably the most successful producer in the world. I say, Successful in the sense that the amount of product that she brings to stage on Broadway and the West End is unparalleled across the world, and the quality of her productions. So her long-running shows are Harry Potter, and Book of Mormon, Mean Girls, but then she does every single play that you hear of that comes into the West End, and she's very prolific on a massive scale like that. So I got to meet her for an hour, and that was oh, it was amazing. I have to say, like honestly, like again, you're talking to someone who really is very well we're not similar because we're two different people but when we speak about our work and how we speak about the business we are very similar like the passion for the job the passion to do a lot at once the passion to support that you know that you wake up and eat and breathe theater that was so we were like that was we felt very kindred spirits in that meeting i mean this was you know three years ago four years ago whenever it was and she just was like you're doing everything right make sure you keep your general manager on. Like the thing I just said to you, like it's important to have support, follow your passion. That's all that matters. Have resilience because you're going to need it. Um, but it sounds like you have it. And she, just, she kind of was like checking with me every now and then. I kind of want to know what you're up to. And, you know, it's. An, I mean, I get compared to her a lot, which is flattering, but a bit annoying really. Because like, you know, we're both just because what? Because we're women, you know, people go, oh, you know. And it's like, well, no, we're just two people that do a lot Sonia on a massive scale and me now on the smaller scale but I guess in comparison they say you know the Sonia Freeman of the fringe because I do like 10 shows a year and she does 10 shows a year on Broadway but anyway the point is it was an honor to meet someone like her that has such artistic you know prowess and passion and yeah it I, I hope one day we might work together but you know there's no rush. (laughs)
0: i'm sure that will happen um talk to me about the festival that you created for new musicals you know new creative talent giving people the opportunity to bring their work to the stage just to be heard an outlet because that's something you're very passionate about aren't you So when we had the company, Giles and I, it was very
1: focused, well, it was all focused on new writing. And I knew that when Aria was born, it had to have this, you know, that had to be a huge part. When I started Aria, I had a a strong relationship with this wonderful theatre that sadly is no longer producing called the Landor Theatre. It's a 70-seat pub theatre in Clapham North. And Rob McQuarr, who set it up, had really done a great job. In those days, we're talking, you know, 20 years ago, Uh, probably when he started in bringing boutique musicals to the stage in this gorgeous little space from ragtime, you know, to a class actor, you know, I love you because to the glorious ones, like lots of shows that you'd never see anywhere else. And believe it or not, you know, that theater and the union theater and the Fimber theater were three of the most talked about spaces for plays and musicals. When I first arrived in London, the fringe was really becoming a thing and remember like before that the fringe wasn't so vibrant so producers didn't really cut their teeth on the fringe anyway rob and i were close you know he was a great guy but he he would always be a bit kind of like programming the space a bit late or last minute and he'd be like oh i've got four months free like what should we do should we do something i said yeah why don't we do a festival of new musicals he's like great you find the work we'll do a box office split and that was that and uh I mean, I programmed it like the Edinburgh Fringe at first. So like the first two weeks people brought shows, they would produce them, but we would do a split with them. And then I couldn't find enough shows that were good enough to do that model. So I ended up producing another two weeks of the festival myself, Mm -hmm. finding work, producing it, the money, you know, whatever. So we did that. And then we did it again the next year, but I applied for some funding from the Arts Council and got 15,000 pounds, which basically meant we could like, up everyone's salaries because it's very hard to like pay as much as you want to when you've got 70 seats but every single time I got more experience and grew I would always strive to, to do better like that's why I, for a long time when I wasn't able to pay like the equity minimums but could only pay just under it I would never pay myself mm-hmm. and I would never use investors money because I always used to say unless the actors are on the union rates, like I can't justify why an investor should get any profit mm-hmm. like that shouldn't happen anyway. I've never really spoken about that, but it's true, and um, I used to really frown upon people that weren't doing things in the right way or or profiting from producing on the fringe, and I would never do that now. I understand the economic model so much better so or have an ability to sort of either underwrite something personally or get extra funding or sponsorship or just not do it, mm-hmm. you know. And we even at Hope Mill, with 100 seats, we signed the equity fringe agreement. So every show, an actor was paid a certain amount that was agreed with the union. And every show would come out minus 40,000 pounds. And we'd have to find that money. Mm you know. And that was without producer fees and rent. And a lot of people don't know these things. They just think, you make loads of work, you must have lots of money. And often you're not, you're working for free, doing other things to make money. Anyway, sorry, I've gone off tangent. We did the festival, we got some funding. And then every year I did the same thing. And then the next year got a bit more funding, got more more sponsorship and we were supported 100 shows over five years wow. and then in the last two years we haven't done the festival because we felt that we're sort of going oh we've got four weeks in a theatre let's just like force some shows in there for instance like we've got the slots but actually we should be only putting on the shows because we've found the work mm-hmm. so I've decided to take a back seat and find work that I want to invest in and develop rather than uh just putting on a show because we have a slot mm-hmm. in a season but it was important for me to sort of establish my passion and what i was about through the festival and to learn more about what's out there you know what artists are out there that are investable
0: and clearly katie a lot that need that helping hand that needs someone to say okay let's see you we're here we're present i yeah. think that's so important particularly what everybody in the arts is going through now. I know that you opened last night with a show. This podcast is obviously airing a couple of weeks after your show opened. What has this tricky six months been like for you and for shows that I'm guessing you would have had up and running?
1: You know, you spend a lot of the initial couple of you know weeks sort of figuring like freaking out and and i really getting very worried you know i had to close the last five years down and zorro and cancel the next shows and realize the adams family wasn't going to go out and sammy wasn't going to happen and sort of update investors figure out the finances mm-hmm. how you're going to pay the debts how you're going to tell investors what you're going to do for the actors how much can you pay them extra than you know then you have to but you want to mm-hmm. and then you start thinking about you know, talking to other people to learn more about what they're going through. Then you start to plan, how can you monetize and make some money at this time? Are you going to like spend all of the reserves or you're not? What are the government offering so you can make the most of furlough and ways to like subsidize the business? And always at the back of my mind was, when can this show reopen? How lucky am I that this show's already built in in the theater had great reviews is a two-handed show that everyone in the country wants right now. When are we going to open it? So then starting to talk to the venue about what are they thinking? Are they going to open with social distancing? Um, and, you know, updating the creative team and the actors and making sure that, you know, they're free and they know. Um, But, you know, spinning a million plates all the time, moving the Adams Family Tour for January, announcing it, sorting out what's happening with Sammy, figuring out where Zorro might go. Now it's kind of... Dead in the water. Like the whole show had to just go in the bin. You know, talking five weeks' work, a year's work actually. Five weeks rehearsal, 120,000 pounds or something. Just so sad. Amazing cast. Oh, just devastating. But you know, you can't sit there crying because everyone's in the same position. Very hard as an independent producer, though. Where every project is financed one by one. There's no money in the bank from you know just a keep going forever um and there's no big show that you're gonna get to open up again with that's gonna maybe like bring money in so started to focus on you know the sort of developing arm you know how can i t- spend a year not producing and developing new work and who will finance that and how can i support that sort of development process
0: and last night katie you had a show that opened socially distanced with a lot smaller audience as well. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about that?
1: So we opened the last five years last night, which was the 1st of October at the Southwark Playhouse, which is opening at 110 seats rather than 220. So they've taken out two rows and then put screens between each bubble mm-hmm. and you have to wear a mask. Um, and the finances are hard because you've got 110 less seats. So we run for six weeks, but it's kind of only like three weeks. Mm -hmm. We've had to rebuild the show and run for all that time. And all the running costs are the same because we pay everyone the same, even though we've got half as many seats. And we've got all these debts from before to cover, which probably won't happen unless we sell every single seat. Um, You know, the team wanted to do it. The cast are amazing. People liked the show. It was very well supported the first time. It got some great reviews. And last night was incredible. The performers, I mean, I didn't think they could get any better, but they literally blew my mind. And audience would jump to their feet. And it's hard for the actors. They can't see anyone's faces. Everyone's got a mask. But it was a joy. So they've done a great job as well. You know, it does feel very safe. You sort of stand outside for ages. And then you come in in your little twos, you go straight to your seat. You're in your little bubble. You then leave the other end so you don't really have interaction with anyone if you don't want if you don't want to sit in a bar and drink and have that risk you don't have to mm-hmm. you go in you go around and if you want a drink then then that's up to you to take your mask off and have a drink in the bar but ultimately if you want to really avoid people you can come to the theatre and do that and that's great that they've managed to do it they're lucky that they have a nice big square space that can have a hundred seats in it too, still because there's no fringe theatres that can do that like, they're all too small. And I'm lucky to have the last five years. And, you know, we're just lucky that the show that closed during the pandemic is the most viable show in the new space. Mm. But I'm under a lot of pressure. And I do think a lot of people don't really appreciate how much pressure I'm under. Mm. Not just financially, but, you know, mo- morally. Like, you know, we- and also we don't know whether we will lock down again. Mm. And ugh, it's just... It is hard and I'm on the edge of my
0: seat now for the next six weeks. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. Katie, I wish you all the best with that. And, Thank you know, Sleepless the Musical, they managed it at the Troubadour <laughs> yeah. in Wembley. So yeah. they prove it can be done. Thank keeping you. Keeping everything crossed. Um, I have to ask you, how on earth do you relax? Are you able to? Do you have time to? It is Christmas the time when you can down tools and have two weeks you know phone off I did
1: have a couple of weeks during this um earlier in the year where I went sort of like walking and stuff in the peak district and the lake district I really like that and I've really found an affinity with the outdoors which I want to explore more I do like to go out and you know I like to go out for dinner and I like to go to cinema and I like the outdoors and I quite like turning my phone off at weekends if I can and I'm much better now. I used to not stop when I was younger. I used to like not do anything social and just work, but now you you relish it. you really enjoy that time of relaxing and stuff, and it's important to know how to switch off and to have a block on social media on your phone after an hour and all those sort of things. you know
0: and lastly, Katie, who would you say up to this point has been your biggest influence?
1: Oh gosh. I knew you were gonna ask that. Uh, my biggest influence I mean, obviously I've already mentioned like producers like Sonia Freeman who like, you know, I'm like, wow. You know, the thing that I most admire is independent producing. Like is in there's lots of people that pick up shows and finance shows, or I like the people that develop the shows from the ground up. So, you know, people like her and people like Kevin McCollum on Broadway who you know developed Rent and Avenue Q and things like that and David Stone of Wicked and and I also really really um you know I love well you know recently I've got to really know artists like Stephen Schwartz and people like that and I look at him as an artist and think wow you know what you've achieved and how much you give back to to artists but from an inspirational point of view it has to be the producers you know that I aspire to be Stephen is someone I hugely admire and in awe of and obviously as a child my mum and my gran- grandparents for their, for giving me the love of theatre and for like allowing me the opportunity to be who I was really and never put any barriers they just, you know, as I changed shops and changed all these courses no one ever gave me any grief over it they just let me figure it out and so that has been a hugely influential part of who I
0: become I think That was theatre producer and founder of ARIA Entertainment, Katie Lipson. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan.